What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and we have two stories for you this week. First, we discuss what is going on with Chinese education companies as Beijing cracks down on profits. Then we have a hot take on the sexual harassment controversy at video game company Activision Blizzard. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. In China, the competition for the best schools is fierce. If you want to get into a good college, you have to do really well on the National College Entrance Examination. And for middle school or high school, you have similar entrance exams that, in part, can determine a child's future early on. In some instances, 600 youngsters are competing for one spot at a particular school. That's compared to an average of around 20 to 1 in the UK. So preparation begins well before the exams begin. Begin, and parents are under pressure to provide their aspiring scholars with as much help as they can get. The parental desire and student angst has allowed for the creation of private education companies, those that provide after-school tutoring, assistant programs, and test prep. Tutoring prep companies have become a massive industry in China, which has the largest education system in the world with 260 million students. The sector grew from around 40 billion US dollars in 2011 to around 100 billion today, with many companies issuing IPOs on foreign exchanges. This has meant that the companies have attracted a lot of foreign investors, which then caused the Chinese government to enact various regulations at one point, limiting the amount of foreign investment allowed in its private education sector. Still, the sector continued to grow unabated. That is until about a week ago when it was revealed that, for various reasons, which include education affordability and a looming population decline, Beijing would force private sector education companies in China to list themselves as non-profits, effectively banning companies from making a profit from teaching school curriculum. That caused a near 60% drop in company valuation on the Nasdaq Stock Exchange, and a massive debate began about profits, education, and private capital. You may remember back in March, we actually covered this issue when it was becoming even more apparent that there were some structural complications in the sector. But today we are going to discuss the decline in much greater detail from a local standpoint, a market standpoint, and from an impact investor standpoint. That's because education is part of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, number four to be exact, and it means it's also part of the social impact investment ecosystem. So we're going to discuss what it means for a social impact company to be profitable near the end of this episode. But to start us off, I called up my research colleague, Xiao Xu Wang, who is actually from China and works out of our Beijing office. And she even has children and is starting to think about what the future of education is going to look like for them. So she was a great person to talk to about and see what she thought about this new regulation. And she started off by telling me, letting me know how popular these companies have become. And not just for college kids, but for high school kids and for middle school children as well. Almost more than 50% meet um, uh, middle school and also primary school students. They are like taking some kinds of like those tutoring courses after school and in, in particular in like tier one city like Beijing and Shanghai it's very common like 
a student spend more than ten hours a week in those um, tutoring programs, and spends on those tutoring programs could also um, come up to thirteen or fourteen percent of uh, a normal, say, um, middle class family's salary level. In 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 some cases, even a a parent, one of the parent, need to. Full time accompanied by the by the child to take all those courses, and also um, there is also some of criticize on the I'll say content they provide to students. For some some cases, they kind of hurry child to learn the main course beyond normal learning rate. So let's quickly recap what she's saying there. The cost of private tutoring programs can account for thirty to forty percent of a family's budget. A number I use, by the way, to calculate the maximum amount of rent I can spend monthly. They require a lot of time spent by both young students and sometimes parents, and they create unreal expectations with their curriculum. By the way, Xiaoxu told me that there is a new adage that her neighborhood has adopted because of how these companies have begun teaching English, and it translates roughly to. Um, you might have learned enough English to be American, but not to be Chinese. So, if everyone realizes how impractical this is, why are enrollment rates so high around China? Well, the problem is, and this is in part what caused the Chinese government to crack down on the companies, is prestigious schools are using these companies as a way to rank students and get the best at their schools. There are schools all over China that anyone can enroll in, but then others are much more selective and use whatever process they can to. Weed out some of the lesser achieving individuals. For some of the schools, they they do want to pick like smarter child or or like high quality students. They they're not allowed by the policy to do so. So they leverage those um I would say out of school systems to ranking students and help them to selecting and recommend high quality students. Everything under under the table, and all the parents they also need to try all means to to figure out through all kinds of message channel to figure out which class, if I get in, I could be recommended, or whether there is a secret context the the tutoring program they are organizing. So if my child win any prize in this contest, I can be enrolled. So it's it's totally. Untransparent. It's kind of a pay-for-play system. Those that have access are both better prepared for exams and have a better chance of getting on lists that would allow them to do better in the future, or, or so it would seem. And what parent doesn't want that for their child? Because of the system, as we noted before, the industry boomed. For example, the largest publicly traded education company in China by market cap, Tal Education, has about forty-five thousand employees and runs nine hundred ninety teaching centers in one hundred and two cities. Let's compare that to Goldman Sachs, one of the largest investment firms in the world. It has about forty thousand employees. But with this size came exposure, and with exposure came party scrutiny. And that scrutiny first came to the scene in 2019 when the party acted against foreign education companies, effectively banning them from operating in China. Then there were only domestic companies left. To operate, the issue appeared again early in 2021 during two conferences in March, where the party raised concerns over how the education companies were operating and marketing their services. We put out a report in March saying that it was likely more restrictive regulation that was coming down the pike, 
and here we are. What is unique about all this is that the Chinese government is basically saying that profitability in these critical sectors is as much of a threat to its smooth operations as any sort of foreign influence. So to understand what these actions mean all in context, I called up Miranda Carr, who has covered the Chinese market for some time, and asked her to make sense of all of this. You are seeing a trend now in China. So obviously a lot of the companies in China are are state-owned enterprises. So there you have a strong element of government control and the um, you know abiding by the appropriate regulations. But it's been the private sector and a lot of these private companies who were previously quite, you know, sort of entrepreneurial, relatively unregulated. But now the tech companies um, and the um, including the online education companies have become really big and powerful players in China's you know, corporate landscape, but also um, in its in its economy and also how it relates to the, the population as large. So the concern um, from the regulatory side about their activities, how they you know, react in terms of dealing with the regulation, you know, crucial issues like the privacy and data of the users. These are all elements where, you know, when the companies were either smaller or they, you know, they, they weren't such a big, important part of the economy, then a lot of it was overlooked. But now they're so strategically important that they will be facing a lot more regulatory pressure. So companies that have are following the more um, you know, responsible business lines, not taking too sort of an aggressive a stance in terms of maybe the marketing or the privacy and data, and actually abiding very strictly um, by the regulation is going to have to be, I mean, that's a key factor that investors are going to have to consider um, when they're looking at private companies much more so um, than you know when, when previously the concern has been about the the maybe this on the SOE side um, what the state influences but now I think the concern how how you deal with the private companies and what regulation they're facing is the the, the big challenge at the moment. There's a challenge of regulation, as Miranda just noted, and there's also the challenge of company intent. Investable education companies are often put into portfolios that would cater to impact investors. Those that are a bit more resolute in their desire to invest in companies that provide a beneficial social or environmental impact alongside a financial one. But those two objectives can come into conflict, as we are seeing right now. People are getting more access to education, but as Xiaoxu told us, it has created a pay-for-play system. So when does an education company become something different than a vessel for positive social impact? And is perhaps affordability the better metric for impact than profit? To find out, I asked our impact investing specialist, Olga Emilianova, for her opinion on the matter. The, the access to basic needs and basic services is something that global impact investors are trying to solve. Right. So in, in that case, it would be access to, you know, medicine, to, to health care, to education, to housing. So in kind of figuring out whether there is a need for social impact investing, we need to understand, is there a problem? Right. And I think in case of China, you know, if you look into general statistics in terms of, you know, access to education, graduation rates, um, you know, enrollment statistic, literacy rates. I think China is actually doing quite well, right? Based on the World Bank data and uh, UNDP, you know, the, the numbers uh, are pretty good. So, you know, maybe the first impression is that 
maybe there is no problem. There is no real space for the impact investors to go to China. But the situation changes when you start looking into more granular data, when it's more regional spread. And, um, you know, when we look into the statistics by, you know, the difference between uh, urban areas, for example, and rural areas, it, it's, it's drastic, you know, like I've been looking into some of the numbers from World Bank just before we talked. Um, and, you know, for the secondary, um, you know, high school education and academic degrees, there is such a big gap between the you know, percentage of the graduations where in rural areas, it's it's really marginal. It's like like two, three percent graduation rate compared to like over 50 in the in the urban areas. So there is certainly some of the gap regionally where there are some demographics that remain underserved. Right. So that's that indicates that, yes, there is a problem and there is a need for that impact investing. So there is a legitimate need in China to not only excel at school, but to get the resources necessary to achieve a positive education that can help benefit anyone's life. And maybe that is how these companies could have staved off some of the regulatory burden, show that they are not only helping those with means, but they are also helping those that are outside of the system. So how might a company do that? How might a company provide a service to a group that isn't really in the position to pay? And the question really is profitability antithetical to the idea of social impact. And what I mean is, can a company provide services to the poor if it requires the poor to pay? That doesn't seem like a good business model or even one that makes sense. Well, for many companies that we consider socially impactful, it isn't about the product you provide. It's about the programs you can help fund. It's, um, you know, through issuance of bonds or, you know, loans or, you know, designating ring fencing, some specific project is addressing the social needs and providing it with the equality in mind and with affordability in mind. So it's, it's very specific ring fenced. Uh, mechanisms that we're looking at from the impact perspective. I don't think you can apply it on a company level and say like, all right, if you're for profitable, then you're, you you don't have any positive impact, right? Because you, you may be both. The, the professional companies, the ones that are providing those professional services uh, or products, you know, whether it's housing, whether it's education, whether it's healthcare, you know, they have to distribute their profit. They have to distribute the the money that they get, maybe in some regions, to support the programs and others. And I think that really kind of connects very well to the area of, of healthcare and pharmaceuticals, where, you know, we have giants, pharmaceutical giants, they're very much for profit, but they are also the ones who are supporting most of the programs in the undeserved markets, providing the Uh, you know, pro bono services or discounted products and adjusting to the local needs. So I have a confession for you all. During the pandemic, I got semi-addicted to a video game called Call of Duty Warzone that was developed by a company called Activision Blizzard. And I wasn't alone in this addiction, by the way. There were 6 million players after its release on March 10, 2020. That number grew to 50 million by April. And a year later, there are over 100 million players. To the joy of my loved ones, I no longer sit up until all hours playing the game, but there is no denying that it has been hugely 
successful for Activision Blizzard. But now the spotlight is being put on the company in a different way. The problem began last week when the California Department of Fair Housing and Employment filed a charged lawsuit against Activision Blizzard that alleged sexual discrimination, harassment, and retaliation at the company. The company claims the lawsuit is meritless and irresponsible. And according to reporting by Robert Schreier of Bloomberg, more than 2,000 employees have signed a letter calling the company's responses to the lawsuit abhorrent and insulting, and they've asked the executive sponsor, Frances Townsend, of the ABK Employee Women's Network to step down for her comments after the lawsuit. As of this recording, thousands of employees have walked off the job at Activision. The CEO has issued a public apology, and some customers are calling for a boycott of all Activision products until the situation is dealt with. To discuss this issue further, I called up Megan Eastman, who has researched diversity, equity, and inclusion at companies for some time. So, Megan, give me your ESG take on this. What is going on at Activision? Sure, Mike. So, there's a couple different threads to pull on here. It's not just about diversity or the status of women at the company, though that's the crux of the lawsuit and the the protests that we've seen. It's also about the tone from the top and what that says about how management thinks about the people who make the company's product. And what this looks like, at least, is some pretty short-sighted ways of thinking about the talent. And so if I'm an investor looking at this, I might be wondering, what else do I not know about Activision Blizzard's human capital? And just how badly might that be eroding value? So what what started all this was that California Department of Fair Employment and Housing lawsuit that was filed on July 20th. But that that's a bit unusual, right, for that department to actually file that lawsuit. And, and it pretends some difficult times ahead for Activision, correct? Yeah, because that's definitely the other piece of this here. So there's the part about Activision Blizzard, but then there's this question about the whole rest of the industry. So yeah, the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing is the one that's behind this lawsuit. And they they don't file a lot of their own lawsuits. They're the place that employees would go oh, to issue a complaint and basically be given permission to, to pursue that complaint against a company but they don't file very many of their own. And so the involvement of this department is already a pretty significant indicator that it thinks that there's a strong case in the allegations. And actually the department's director has said explicitly and publicly that they litigate where they think they'll be able to help remedy systemic problems and where the litigation can serve as a precedent with a pretty explicit goal of having a wider impact beyond the case itself. So that definitely tells you something about how this Department of Fair Employment and Housing is viewing the allegations around Activision. And we already know that the software industry, especially in California, has come under heat over the last several years for lack of diversity, for failure to nurture and promote women, for discriminatory behavior, sexual harassment. I mean, recall the Google walkout in 2018, for example, that was centered around the Me Too movement. And then there's the video game industry, which is a part of the software industry as far as the companies that make the games. Uh, And gaming culture more widely has developed a certain reputation for misogyny. I think about the Gamergate controversy a few years back as being probably the most publicly visible example of that. And so I would absolutely read the filing of this lawsuit as a shot across the bow for other companies in the industry. 
And if I'm invested in some of those companies, or I'm thinking about investing in some of those companies, that means I'm looking at potentially heightened risk of litigation. And I might want to be asking management a few pointed questions about this if I can, or at least digging for some more information, because even if a company doesn't get sued, this whole thing still raises questions about talent management and long-term value and the treatment of workers and ability to recruit and retain and basically get the most value out of the talent you have. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Xiaoshu, Miranda, Olga, and Megan for talking to me about this week's news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you want to, to subscribe. Talk to you next week and have a good weekend. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.